History is the most important subject that you can study. And if you can't see what's happening in the past, you can't look nearly as far in the future. Okay, we've had a problem here. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Men will still say, this was a fine trouble. This is Rewind Repeat, a history podcast. What you're about to hear is part four of a multi-part series on the making of Europe. This episode covers the history of the Franks and finally introduces Charlemagne. If you haven't listened to the first three parts, don't worry, you'll still be able to follow. If you do listen to the previous episodes, you will get more out of it. Now, for Charlemagne, The Forging of Europe, Part 4. What is a state? Seems like a question with a pretty obvious answer. State is a territory with people in it led by an established government. And yet there's a lot of debate on that in academic circles. Is this a modern invention? Is it something ancient? And then you have weird examples in history of things you would think of as a state, but defies even the basic definition there. For example, it may surprise some of you to know that the Catholic Church has permanent observer status in the United Nations. It gets the status as the Holy See, and while it's not a member, the Holy See participates and makes recommendations on what happens in the UN. How does a religious institution get a seat at the table of what's supposed to be an organization of nation states? The Holy See is a sovereign entity in international law. And when you think about that, what does that do to your definition of a state? Now, the Holy See controls the Vatican City, which is a territory, but it's only 110 acres right there in the middle of Rome. It's the smallest state in the world. And technically, the Holy See is not the same as the Vatican City, so I don't want to misspeak here. From what I understand, even if the Holy See didn't control that 110 acres, it would still be participating in the UN. But how does a 110 acres with a thousand people on it constitute a state? You've got entire populations trying to become states with much larger territory at stake, much greater populations. I can think of the Kurds in the Middle East as an example. But here's the Catholic Church. How does it do it? It's a remarkable feat. And then if you know the history of the Catholic Church, you understand that actually from its beginning, their entire history is just remarkable. They have been a religion acting like a state, getting nations to bend to their will from the beginning. Now, to a mind, a modern mind without a religious perspective, that has to be mind-boggling. Why would anyone, a nation, a kingdom, an empire, people with real power and militaries, why would any of them listen to the church? The church doesn't even have an army. That's a good question. And this comes into play in what we're going to be talking about today. 
We left off in the last series at the end of what's called the Imperial Restoration, when Byzantine Emperor Justinian manages to unite eastern and western parts of the Roman Empire and resurrecting the Roman Empire in the 550s. He was the first to do so, and he did it with the support of the Catholic Church. Now, Justinian made his western capital, Ravenna, a city on the Adriatic coast that historically had been an administrative center when the Roman Empire was split in two. And after Justinian, succeeding emperors had a hard time keeping it all together. Talked about how Justinian had spent all the money to build what he did, and after he died, there's just so many threats to the empire, the Persians in the east, Germans in Europe, Slavs in the Baltics, Arabs in the Middle East, that an emperor just couldn't keep it together. And the Byzantines would slowly lose their grip on power in Italy. Even when Justinian took control of Italy, he took 20 years to do so. It was two decades of war that just ravaged Italy, depopulated. It was just a big mess. And he defeated the Germans called the Ostrogoths. There was a Germanic tribe there in 552. And he did it with the help of various Germanic people, including a tribe called the Lombards. Now, the Lombards were a Germanic tribe, and they were Aryan. So Aryan is not quite Catholic. They're Christian, but they believe different things. And after 15 years of helping out the Byzantines conquer Italy, the Lombards just decided, hey, it's wide open here. Why not just come down here and settle down? And that's what they did. They took their people and some other tribes. They moved into northern Italy starting around 568, and there was no one there to stop them. And they settled down, made a new kingdom. This kingdom would be called the Lombards, essentially. And they would take control of most of northern Italy. And eventually, they'd even take a pretty big chunk of southern Italy from the Byzantines. And the Byzantines were too weak to do anything about it. But if you're the Catholic Church, you're freaking out. Here comes a new Germanic tribe to take control of Italy, and now there's no emperor to stop them. And this was a pretty big deal. The Pope was actually the key power in Italy. He ruled the oldest, richest, and most prestigious institution in all of Italy. He was a huge landowner. He owned more land than anyone in Italy and maybe even in the entire empire. And so there's a lot at stake for him. And he doesn't have an army to protect him. So he's freaking out. The Byzantines do finally manage to keep a check on the Lombards. They basically say, okay, you can keep what you've got, but leave Rome, Ravenna, a few cities in between alone. And the Lombards say, okay, they sign a peace deal with them. 680, 681. Catholic Church can rest easy. Rome's not going to fall just yet. And even better for them, the Lombards actually start converting to Catholicism. And this was a very complicated situation going on here. The emperor would send his representative called the Exarch to Ravenna to administer the government, but it's not like he had a big force there. So it was an uneasy peace. He had the Pope, the Byzantines, the Lombards, all the different interests and ideas. And if at any time those Byzantines weakened, you had better believe the Lombards are going to take advantage of it and take more territory. And then the Pope always had to worry about both of them. The Pope didn't want to be just another bishop for the Lombards and didn't want to be the emperor's bishop either. They wanted to stay independent. So 
you have this complicated situation and none of the relationships are smooth. The emperor and the pope were at odds most of the time. There was a growing difference in how the church in Rome was practicing Catholicism versus the churches in the East. The emperor was always trying to get the pope under his control, and the pope was always saying he's the ultimate authority. So these, this situation just gets more complicated because of that. And the Byzantines couldn't fully rule Italy without the pope's support. Turns out the Italians loved the pope. The pope was there with the Catholic church, taking care of the public works like waterworks and sanitation and giving alms to the poor. So it's obvious they all kind of need each other. And there is always a struggle between the Pope and the emperor over who would nominate the archbishop in Ravenna. Sometimes the Pope would get control. Sometimes the emperor would get controlled. At one point, the exarch in 709 actually had a bunch of papal officials killed just before he took charge of the city he gets to the city and then the people of the city murder him because they love the pope and so it's just a big mess with friends like that who needs the lombard enemies right as the saying goes and for the lombards they can see the byzantines can't even control rome here's an institution a city with uh, basically like a militia but no real army and in 702, they decide to kind of test the waters. They break the peace. They conquer some new lands and cities. They get within five miles of Rome, and they just stop. It wasn't a conquest, just an appetizer. The peace breaks down, of course. You know it would. The Byzantine Empire is in a mess now in the 700s. It's going through a decade of anarchy. Muslim Arabs are besieging Constantinople, and they're gobbling up just more of their territory. Lombards see this happening. They gobble up even more Italian cities, including some of the Pope's lands, and the emperor can't do anything to stop it. Well, in this time period, about 722 or 723, the Byzantines do beat the Arabs back. The emperor comes on the scene, the new one, named Leo III, and he tries to get more power in Italy. He tries to exert more influence on that. He's got to pay for these armies to fight the Arabs. And he passes new taxes in Italy. Huge tax increases. He doubles it practically. That's what many historians think. And a pope, as the largest landowner, is, of course, hit hard. But the pope's thinking, why am I paying taxes? The emperor didn't come to help me against the Lombards at all. They just keep doing what they're going to do, and the emperor hasn't helped. And you got a new pope on the scene, Pope Gregory II, and he refuses to pay. And that's a big moment in the Catholic Church's history. You know, in theory, the Catholic Church had always seen itself independent, but in practice, they had always been uh, a part of the Roman Empire system. But now, in practice, they're starting to become independent. The emperor ordered the exarch to take an army to quell the rebellion. The pope's got to pay his taxes. Exarch has trouble raising one. Like I said, everybody loves the Pope. So it's probably not that big of an army, but he marches down to Rome. And when he gets there, the Romans don't support him. And even worse, the Lombards in southern Italy don't support him either. They basically stop the Byzantine emperor from quelling the rebellion. And then to make matters worse at this time, Leo III well, he dials up the tension between the East and the West churches. He says the Catholic Church needs to stop worshiping idols. He orders images of Christ to be taken down in the East. This becomes known as the iconoclasm controversy. 
So the Pope is in rebellion. Tensions are just starting to break down almost completely, but the Pope has to hold on to the Emperor's help just in case the Lombards try to conquer Rome. He's just doing anything he can to keep the Catholic Church independent. And when the Emperor sends a new exarch this time, he's saying, look, deal with the rebellion, and if you have to kill the Pope, kill the Pope. It's an emergency situation for Gregory. It gets so bad, he actually allies himself with the Lombards in southern Italy. And you see, the Lombards in southern Italy, while they did call the king up in the north their king, they are actually largely independent. This is a problem for the Lombards in the north because they wanted complete control of the south, but they never really had it. And so with this alliance, you get basically a complete break between the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire in the east. They're making their own alliances now. They're not paying taxes. They're making their own alliances. It's not too long after this that the Pope's lands are called the Holy Republic. They're basically a state now. And with this alliance with Southern Lombard, now the king in the north, King Lutpran, springs into action. He's been looking for a chance to unify the Southern duchies under his control again. The papal alliance forces his hand. He takes an army south and he actually does get some control of the southern territory. He, he's able to get more power. And he's actually got Byzantine support for it. Because, well, the Byzantines want to take the Pope down. So now the Pope is surrounded by Lombards in the north, in the south. Relations with the Emperor is not good. Relations with the Lombards aren't good. It's a really complicated situation. And it's getting worse for the Pope all the time. The situation's desperate. Grasping at straws, Pope Gregory turns to the only place that could possibly help him. He turns the north to the Franks. In 739, he sends two clerics with a letter begging the Franks for help. And the leader at the time was a Frank named Charles Martel, or Charles the Hammer. So who were these Franks? Well, I'm going to take a pause in this current timeline to properly introduce the Franks. And I think this is important because we have to get the background of these people to understand, well, the situation, but more importantly, about Charlemagne's background. And remember, this is a series about Charlemagne. We're going to get to him. The Franks were a confederation of Germanic tribes, and they lived up really in the northeast area of what we call France and in the area of Belgium today. The Franks were just this collection of tribe. They all adopted this name. The name means courageous person or free man. And they were described in history as your typical Germanic tribe. People who had intense passion for warfare. And we'll see this in their history. So these tribes, these Frankish tribes, they pop up in Roman history around the mid-200s, raiding across what was called back then Gaul. And I might use the term Gaul and Francia, in the same kind of sense. I apologize if I mix them up, but it's about the same territory, modern-day France and Belgium. And they were raiding down there. They raided all the way down to Spain, even into Africa. And this was, of course, a problem for the Romans, but the Romans did come to an understanding with the Franks. And for the next two centuries, the Franks would actually be allies at times with the Romans, helping to fight other Germanic tribes or in other parts of the Roman Empire. 
And for the most part, though, they were just this collection of tribes that are more concerned about their internal tribal rivalries than really anything else. And the Romans would be able to take advantage of those differences to keep control of them and also get them to fight for them. By the 300s, this is around Constantine's reign, the Franks become a pretty big part of the Roman Empire in the West. They're fighting for the Romans in Spain. They're fighting for the Romans in Egypt, Asia Minor, and Mesopotamia. Now, that's an image you probably don't really think of. Some Germanic warriors fighting in the Middle East with their battle axes. But that's what was happening. In fact, the Franks became so important that there were some major generals in the Roman military structure that were Franks. They even had a Frank try to usurp the throne in the Roman Empire in 355. He lasted for 28 days, just so you know. <laughs> and the next time a Frank would be declared an emperor was, would be Charlemagne. In return for this military service, now the Franks were actually peacefully settled in Roman territory in Gaul, northeastern part of it. And it's actually an important point here because basically their identity is being formed under the profound influence of the Roman Empire. The ruling Franks were familiar with the Roman Empire. They looked up to its heritage and legacy. And so they're basically a part of it. They settled in the Rhine area, northeastern Gaul. The area was divided by the Rhine. They traditionally had settled on both sides of it there, different tribes of the Franks. Historians think there are only about 200,000 of them. And when the Roman Empire fell, they managed to sub subjugate the rest of the Roman Celtic population in Gaul, millions of them. They kicked out the Visigoths, the former Germanic tribe ruling in the area. They subjugated other Germanic tribes. They basically take control of this area. And they do it while they're essentially this loose confederation or collection of tribes once again. Now, there were exceptions in their history where you did have one strong king that united every tribe there, but it never lasted that long. Civil war would break out, and you'd have this pattern, strong king, civil war, strong king, civil war. And the most notable exception to this was one of the earlier great kings of the Franks, and his name was Clovis. Clovis, he's just one of those kings in history you can't ignore because he's just written about in so much color. You know, you get so many of the, this king ruled then and then ruled then and then he died and the next king came and that's it. That's all you hear about it. But with Clovis, you get so much more story. Clovis is not only the king that is able to unite the Franks, more importantly, as background to our story on Charlemagne, he is the king that converts to Catholicism. And by doing so, he leads all the Franks to eventually convert to Catholicism as well. And that's important to point out because the major Germanic tribes at this time, like the Visigoths and Vandals, they were Aryan. And to Catholics, this was actually worse than pagan. They were heretics. The Aryans were Christians that didn't accept the full divinity of Christ. They didn't accept the Trinity. They had some pretty big differences in how they saw the nature of Jesus Christ. And when you look at the Greek words used to describe those differences, you actually get boiled down to one word and one letter in that word difference. So we're going to see here that the fate of nations and empires are hinging on one letter of belief. That's the way it goes in history. 
And as a side note, you can understand really the cause and effect that's going on here and how one man can change history. And we'll see this with Clovis. Now, most of the history on Clovis comes from one source. It's a source from a Roman Gallic bishop who comes down to us as Gregory of Tours. So he's one of those guys from the old aristocratic senatorial family line in Gaul. And he becomes a bishop of an important city, Tours. And it was an important city because it was home to the shrine of one of the most famous saints of the Franks and later France. And that saint is St. Martin. St. Martin was actually a former Roman soldier who turned into a Catholic monk and became so famous for his deeds that after he died, there's actually people fighting over his body. There is the city where he was a monk at. There is where he was bishop at Tours. And eventually the people of Tours stole his body in the night, enshrined him. And he became the saint associated with the French royal family, mainly for some of the stories we're going to cover. So Gregory is a bishop. He's very interested in the spread of Catholicism in Gaul. And to him, Clovis, because he converts to Christianity, is a hero king. Now, Gregory does leave out a lot of details of Clovis's life, but he includes a lot. And as we go through these stories, it's helpful to remember that once again, to Gregory, Clovis is a hero. These stories are actually meant to make Clovis look good. Though to modern ears, it's going to make Clovis look pretty bad. Gregory introduces Clovis's reign, talking about his takeover of northern Gaul in the late 5th and early 6th century. He attacks the city of Soissons. And for all those who like French, I'm so sorry for butchering every French word that we're going to come across from. He takes his pagan army, he plunders churches all along the way, and among other things, he steals a vessel of great size, and as Gregory describes, wondrous workmanship. It's a vessel that he stole from the bishop, and the bishop begs Clovis, he sends some of his cronies to beg Clovis to return that. Basically, look, keep everything you pillaged and you took from the church, but if there's one thing we can have back, it needs to be this vessel. Here's how Gregory relates how Clovis responds to this request. Quote, The king listened to them and replied, Follow me to Soissons, where all the objects which we have seized are to be distributed. If this vessel for which your bishop is asking falls to my share, I will meet his wishes. They came to Soissons, and all the booty was placed in a heap before them. King Clovis addressed his men as follows, pointing to the vessel in question, I put it to you, my lusty freebooters, that you should agree here and now to grant me that you're over and above my rational share. They listened to what he said, and the more rational among them answered, Everything in front of us is yours, noble king, for our very persons are yours to command. Do exactly as you wish, for there's none among us who has the power to say to you, Nay. As they spoke, one of their number, a feckless fellow, greedy and prompt to anger, raised his battle axe and struck the ewer. You shall have none of this booty, he shouted, except your fair share. All present were astounded at his words. End quote. So this guy had a knower just shatters the vessel. The king couldn't have stopped it, and it was in front of everyone. Now, I have to admit, as an American, it kind of warms up my heart to see a guy like that stand up to the king, Clovis here. 
especially since Clovis could have actually made it part of his share and then given it from his own instead of above and beyond his share. But the story shows you what kind of person Clovis is. Because even though Clovis didn't do anything at that moment, he was furious. He gives the broken vessel to the bishop. And he's not the kind of guy, though, that's going to just let someone slide him in front of everybody and get away with it. Here's what Gregory says happened later. Quote, At the end of the year, he ordered the entire army to assemble on the parade ground so that he could examine the state of their equipment. The king went round inspecting the mall and came finally to the man who struck the ewer. No other man has equipment in such a bad state as yours, said he. Your javelin is in shocking condition and so are your sword and your axe. He seized the man's axe and threw it on the ground. As the soldier bent forward to pick up his weapon, King Clovis raised his own battle axe in the air and split his skull with it. That is what you did to my ear and soy since he shouted, the man fell dead. End quote. Clovis just kills the guy by splitting his skull. Talk about a hero king. And this tale is famous in France. It's taught to French school children earlier in like the 1950s, just like American children would be taught about Washington chopping down the cherry tree, not lying about it. Except this one has a death involved, and I'm not really even sure what kind of lesson the French children would learn from this story. Clovis was ruthless. Really, all the kings of this time were. But you can read Gregory's history, and you had to be if you're going to survive in this kind of environment. There's a lot of killing, betrayals, putting away of wives to marry new ones, backstabbing, lying, pillaging, plundering. Anything was done to survive and expand the kingdom. And remember, Clovis was just one king of several in the Frankish Confederation at this time. He was clearly the most powerful. But he had to do a lot of ruthless and bloody acts to become ruler over all of them. In one story Gregory recounts, he plots the overthrow of a neighboring king named Sigebert, who is lame. He tells Sigebert, the lame son, Clauderic, look, just get rid of him and I'll support you. And his son falls for that story. He says, okay, I'll take over. I'll kill my father and I'll give you some of the treasure for supporting me in this. So the son kills the father and he says to Clovis, send your envoys over, take the treasure that you want. And Clovis says, okay, actually just keep the treasure, but I still want you to show my envoys what you have. And so while Cloderick is showing this treasure, one of Clovis's envoys splits his skull with a double-headed axe. And Cloderick dies. Then after that, Clovis comes out to Cloderick's tribe and just says, look, someone killed... Cloderick, Cloderick killed his father and now I want to be king. Here's how Gregory says Clovis describes it. Quote, Cloderick, the son of your king, my brother, was busy plotting against your father and putting it out that I wanted him killed. As Sigebert fled through the forest of Bukau, Cloderick set assassins on him and had him murdered. While Cloderick was showing his father's treasure, he in his turn was killed by somebody or other. I take no responsibility for what's happened. It is not for me to shed the blood of one of my fellow kings, for that is a crime. But since things have turned out in this way, I will give you my advice, and you must make of it what you will. It is that you should turn to me and put yourself under my protection. End quote. Gregory then writes, quote, 
When they heard what he had to say, they clashed their shields and shouted their approval. Then they raised Clovis up on a shield and made him their ruler. In this way, he took over both the kingship and the treasure of Segebert and submitted Segebert's people to his own rule, end quote. Well, turns out things went very well for Clovis. <laughs> Feels like he was a gangster mob boss making offers no one can refuse. And they took the offers and he still killed them. He's a devious, cunning, and bloody king. And that's how he takes over. It's also important to note, too, what the Germanic concept of a king is at this time. The kings were special among the people. Their power was rested on what we would say is basically magic, but a kind of special charisma. It's symbolized by the length of the king's hair. Here's what Tom Holland writes in his book Millennium. Quote, the Franks had long held a king to possess a mysterious communion with the supernatural, one that could provide victory in battle to their men, fertility to their women, and fruitful harvests to their fields, a magical power dependent upon his having a luxuriant head of hair. End quote. The Frankish kings, they all had long hair, and if it was cut, well, they lost their power. And some kings would be removed from the throne, and they would have their hair cut, and then be locked up. And then you would know if the guy is making a comeback simply if he was trying to grow his hair out. In one case, Clovis deposed a fellow Frankish king and his son, and they were lucky in that their lives were spared. Clovis had their hair cut, and they were sent to the church and ordered basically to become a priest and a deacon. Now the two are plotting a comeback, and the king finds out, confirms that they're threatening to grow their hair, and so he cuts their head off can't grow your hair if your head is not on your body kings were also kings because they were successful warlords and the franks remember they're described as eager for battle they expected the kings to lead them into battle and to be victorious it was just part of the job description if you're a king you're leading them in battle and the king needed the support of his warriors and the nobility and the best way to do that was to reward them with land and gold. And the best way to get land and gold was to take it from other people. So the whole system really was built on war making. Take booty from other kingdoms and split it with the loyal people. And that's how you gain loyalty. It was the basic part of a job for a king to do that. It's like crunching numbers if you're an accountant. And Clovis fit that description of a Germanic king and then some. He united the Franks by killing all the other kings. There's one story how he plots to overthrow the king of the Franks across the Rhine. He bribes the nobility to publicly call for Clovis here to fight their king called Ragnarok. He pays them with gold or ornaments and sword belts, but it turns out that the gold ornaments were actually bronze. They were just plated with gold, so he's tricking the nobility there, but they fall for it. They call for Clovis to come and fight Ragnarok, Clovis comes with his army. He crushes Ragnarok. Ragnarok runs away, but he's arrested by his troops, along with his brother, and they both are brought to Clovis. Ragnarok and his brother Rikar. And here's what Gregory says, how Clovis deals with the two brothers. Quote, Why have you disgraced our Frankish people by allowing yourself to be bound? Asked Clovis. It would have been better for you to have died in battle. He raised his axe and split Ragnarok's skull. 
Then he turned to Rickar and said, If you had stood by your brother, he would not have been bound in this way. He killed Rickar with a second blow of his axe. End quote. So some more skull splitting by Clovis. You get a lot of that in this history. But it's an interesting peek into the expectations of a Germanic king, even if they lost in battle. And it's important to note that these two kings were most likely cousins of some sort of Clovis. Gregory writes, quote, The two kings I have told you, Ragnarkar and Rikar, were relatives of Clovis, and his, at his command their brother Rignamur was also put to death in Le Mans. As soon as all three were slain, Clovis took over the kingdom and their treasure, end quote. So it's a lot like the last story, complete with skull splitting. And then Gregory explains that this is pretty much how Clovis built his kingdom. And I think this is a wonderful description of this Frankish king. And remember, this is a Frankish king that the Franks see as a hero. This is their role model. Quote, In the same way, he encompassed the death of many other kings and blood relations of his whom he suspected of conspiring against his kingdom. By doing this, he spread his dominion over the whole of Gaul. One day, when he had called a general assembly of his subjects, he is said to have made the following remark about the relatives whom he had destroyed. How sad a thing it is that I live among strangers like some solitary pilgrim, and that I have none of my own relations left to help me when disaster threatens. He said this not because he grieved for their deaths, but because, in his cunning way, he hoped to find some relative still in the land of the living whom he could kill. End quote. Quite the king there, looking for more relatives to kill. This is the last thing Gregory writes about Clovis before talking about his death, and I really can't think of a more fitting conclusion for who is ultimately a violent tyrant, this hero king of the Franks. By the early 500s, the whole of Roman Gaul, except the northwestern tip in the southern strip, was controlled by Clovis. And if you're thinking about this in the timeline, this is roughly the right around the time period when the Roman Empire was falling, or just after it fell. I'm not repeating these stories just to show you what kind of man Clovis is, but to just show you how remarkable this story of Clovis's life is. The fact that he converted to Catholicism. Remember, this is a devious, lying, quick-tempered, skull-splitting tyrant, but he has a soft spot for his wife. Early on in his reign, he had put away a previous wife or mistress and married a woman named Clotilde. Clotilde was a daughter of a Burgundian prince. That's a different Germanic tribe living in roughly the same area, just to the south. But her father was murdered along with her mother by her uncle. So, like I said, everyone was pretty bloody and violent at this time period. She was exiled, and it sounds like from Gregory that she probably became a Christian during this time of exile. And Clovis marries her. They had a son. Clotilde wanted to baptize him as Catholics want to do. And she's just trying to persuade Clovis, this pagan, to let her do it. She keeps urging him. Basically, if you look at what Gregory's writing, nagging him <laughs> with many sermons on why Clovis's pagan gods were nothing and he should worship the Catholic God, the God who created the wood and stone that the pagans worshipped. Clovis wasn't persuaded, said there's no proof that her God was God at all, but somehow... This skull-splitting tyrant allows her to baptize their son. And wouldn't you know, immediately after that, the son dies. Now, what do you think Clovis would do in this situation? 
Turns out he did nothing. Here's how Gregory says Clovis reacted. Gregory writes that Clovis immediately began to reproach his queen, saying, quote, If he had been dedicated in the name of my gods, he would have lived without question. But now that he has been baptized in the name of your god, he has not been able to live a single day. End quote. And that's it. That's what this violent, angry, cunning king did when his son died. He didn't put her away. They had another son, and she had him baptized. And once again, the son gets sick, and he's near to death. Clovis says, see, look what's happening here. First one died. This one's going to die, too. Clotilde prays. The second son recovers, and she says, look, look what my God did. And both Clotilde and Clovis takes as a sign from their Catholic God. Shortly after, Clovis is fighting a Germanic tribe called the Alemanni in southeastern France sometime in the late 490s. And according to Gregory, you have something happen that was very similar to what happened to Constantine when he converted. Clovis was in battle. Unlike Constantine, though, he was losing. (laughs) He prays to the Catholic God for victory, promising conversion, and then he wins. And after this battle, he tells his wife, that he won because he called on the name of Christ. And so she gets the bishop immediately has him baptized. And that's how Clovis converts. But remember, Clovis isn't anybody. He's a king. He's a king of a large tribe of Germans. And when he's baptized, so are 3,000 other Franks, including his sisters. It makes sense, right? If you want to stay on the good side of the skull-splitting king, well, it's probably a good idea to convert too. And some historians actually suggest that Clovis's war with Ragnarkar was actually over this conversion, that Ragnarkar was leading a group of Germanic Franks that did not want to convert and did not like that Clovis converted. And look what happened to them. Now, though Clovis converted for a short-term advantage, what he really ended up with was a long-term advantage. Clovis couldn't have been the first Frank to be Catholic, but he was the first Frank king to convert. And when he would go on and unite the Franks under his rule, over time, all the Franks would convert to Catholicism. In a sea of Arians and pagans, this meant that the Franks would be the only workable partner for the Catholic Church. The only Germanic tribe the Catholic Church could fully trust. And when the Pope was looking for a protector. He would no doubt look to the Franks because of this. Good relations between the Pope and the Frankish kings were practically a given now. And this not only helped with diplomacy, it's important to note that the Catholic Church was a willing and able bureaucratic system, a state within a state. And so now you have basically a very educated at this time, administrative system as a Frankish king that you could rely on. So it just made him more efficient in administration of his government compared to other Germanic kingdoms. Easier time managing finances, easier time keeping records. And this all came across because Clovis converted. Here's how Paul Johnson puts this relationship between the Catholic church and these Germanic tribes in a history of Christianity. He writes, quote, By means of Episcopate, the Roman world projected into its barbarian successor elements of administrative continuity, 
and a rallying force which kept part of the city civilization together. In some cases, the bishops organized civilized resistance against the invaders. Far more often, however, they negotiated with them, and in time they came to act as their advisors. End quote. So Clovis gets the most educated people on board as his advisors now. You can see it's just a great advantage for his kingdom, for his administration of his kingdom, and for future diplomacy. So Clovis unites all the Franks, and when he dies in 511, he does what all good German kings did at the time. He left an equal share of inheritance to all his sons. That's right. He worked for 30 of his short 45 years of life, building this kingdom, uniting it, keeping together, and in one moment, Clovis undoes all of it. His kingdom splits, his sons inevitably go to war, and you get a couple hundred years of civil war. That's the pattern we're talking about. Strong king followed by civil war. And this happens over and over. And so the civil war makes the Frankish kingdom, or Francia, weaker over the years. The ruling family, which I haven't mentioned yet, was called the Merovingians, of which Clovis was a part of, they become weaker as well because in the civil war, many of the kings are coming in young, too young. They have to have rely on regents. And then when they come into age where they can take over, they normally end up dying in war. And so over time, the kings get weaker and the real power begins to be held by these regents. And the most powerful ones were called the mayors of the palace. The mayors of the palace were the ones responsible for the king's household, for their wealth, for all aspects of royal administration, things like justice, the treasury, the army. And as these civil wars kept going on, these mayors got more powerful. Eventually, the mayors became the real power behind the throne. The king was still an important figurehead. Remember the mystical power in that hair? But the mayors were the ones really ruling. And at some points, these mayors were essentially the ones fighting the civil wars. And they would get sometimes a new king from the royal line to basically be their puppet. And then you'd have several kings fighting as well. It was a mess. Eventually, one mayor, Pepin of Herstal, manages to defeat an opposing mayor who had the king on his side. And by doing so, actually united the Franks under his rule in 687. So we fast forward quite a bit here. Pepin took the title Duke of the Franks. He made the mayoral office there hereditary. So basically his descendants would now rule the Franks, and this dynasty would be called the Pippinids, of which Charlemagne was one. Of course, Charlemagne became so famous, the dynasty got named Carolingian afterwards. Anyhow, Pepin is now in power. The king is 100% a puppet. When Pepin dies, there's a brief civil war, but one of his sons, his most military-dominant son, takes complete control in 718. The king was still there as a figurehead, but this mayor was the real power, and his name was Charles Martel, or Charles the Hammer. This is the guy that Pope Gregory would plead to eventually twice for help against the Lombards. So we're getting close back to where we started. Now, Charles the Hammer continues the work of his father and starts to once again subjugate all these other Germanic tribes under Frankish rule. You see, during the Civil Wars, the Franks were fighting each other and these surrounding tribes, like we talked about, the Burgundians, the Alemanni, different tribes there broke away, became pretty much independent. So Charles 
is now trying to rebuild the kingdom. It takes time, as usual. There's a lot of rebellion going on, but he is putting them down and making some great progress. The thing he's most known for, though, Charles the Hammer, is for a battle in 732 called the Battle of Tours. That, depending on who you read, prevents Gaul from turning into a Muslim territory. Now, historians are still debating about it to this day, how important this battle was, and there are some convincing arguments on each side. But this battle happens in what is essentially southwestern France today in a territory called Aquitaine, between two major cities there, Tours and Poitiers. This whole area, Aquitaine, was basically fairly independent, one of those areas that tended to rebel often, and at this moment in time in 732, it was actually fully independent. It was led by someone called Duke Odo, and he had been fighting the Muslims on and off in his reign. Now, it might seem odd to think that there's Muslims raiding in the middle of France, but at this time they ruled in Spain and the southernmost part of Gaul as well. It was all controlled by the Muslims part of a caliphate there that controlled territory from Spain all the way to Pakistan. So it's a pretty big empire there. And they had been raiding into Gaul for some time now. Now Duke Odo actually defeats them in a major battle and he kills the Muslim governor of Spain. And then he gets involved with some political intrigue, allies himself with a Berber who rebels against the Muslims. The Berber gets destroyed. The Muslim Arab governor now decides to come after Odo for that alliance. And using southern Gaul as an easy way to logistically support a fairly big army there, the Muslims come up into Gaul and they defeat Odo at a battle at Bordeaux. Takes a heavy toll on Odo. He tries to reorganize his troops. He's realizing that it's not looking so great for him. And he writes to Charles the Hammer. He says, look, uh, some Muslims are here on their way north to plunder. I could use some help here. Now, for the Franks, this is a pretty big danger. You got the Muslims knocking at their border, so to speak. But it's also a very big opportunity. A big opportunity for some propaganda that Charles Martel would need to remake this kingdom. The Muslims are on their way to Tours. Once again, this is an important city of the Franks where St. Martin is buried. And if he defeats them there, he can be basically the savior of all this kingdom, the guy who turned the Muslims back. So Charles says, okay, I'll help, but you got to submit to me. Odo agrees. It's either that or complete defeat. Charles marches south. Now, at this point, the Muslims haven't faced much resistance since they crushed Odo, and they're feeling pretty confident. They're sending raiding parties everywhere. They're not even doing reconnaissance. They're just doing their thing. And then out of nowhere... Somehow, on their path to Tours, they run into a big army camped right in their way. You see, they never knew about the Franks' military strength. They were cut off guard completely when they see this army in their path. And this army is led by Charles. It's a whole bunch of Frankish infantry. No one knows the size of these armies, but conservative estimates put it at both armies roughly around 20,000 troops and Charles has the upper hand he chooses the battlefield he catches the Muslims off guard 
And all he has to do is just make them retreat. You see, he doesn't even need a battle. If the Muslims retreat, he can harass them all the way back down and he can still be the victor over the Muslims, the guy who turned them back, the guy who saved Tours. Now, the Muslims are led by Commander Abdul al-Rahman. Now, I totally butchered the name. I'm sorry. This commander, though, he only had one option that was to attack, and so he needed to win a decisive battle. Now, the description of the battle is not much, but military historians have been able to provide some interesting detail. You have Bernard Bachrock writing in his book, Early Carolingian Warfare, that most likely actually the Franks outnumbered the Muslims, but the Muslims were better equipped. They would have had composite recursive bows that could launch arrows with enough force to pierce armor. And you can imagine the sound of thousands of arrows taking flight, rushing through the air, piercing through your fellow soldiers and the cries. And Bacharach points out that that sound could unnerve even the bravest and most experienced soldier. The Muslims also probably had better armor and blades coming from a richer society. And they had cavalry. Now, Charles didn't have any cavalry. It was all infantry. And historically, it's always been difficult for infantry to face a cavalry charge. But what Charles did have, even if the armies were roughly the same size, was a well-trained and experienced army. They were well-drilled and they were on the defensive. And in those days of primitive warfare, typically the defensive held the advantage. The best historical account of the battle comes from an anonymous chronicler that most likely had access to eyewitnesses. And he writes that Charles draws up his line of infantry as if they were standing, quote, like a wall, end quote. So this was a dense phalanx formation, a method that the Franks had been using before Charles the Hammer, and they were using even down to Charlemagne's grandchildren. Each infantryman would line up, They'd place their wooden shields in front. The wooden shield would provide cover for them and some of the next soldier. And it was a very dense and tight formation. There was one account where these two Frankish armies met in battle, and the formations were so dense and tight that the dead were still standing as they were fighting because there's no room for them to fall. That might be an exaggeration, but what it does show you is the training that this army would have had it takes a lot of training to get this formation correct and also be able to wield a sword without stabbing your fellow soldier so charles's army lines up in this dense formation the muslims launch their attack no doubt letting loose thousands of arrows before charging with cavalry and then following up with their infantry now imagine if you're just one of these franks waiting for the charge you survive the arrows comrades all around you screaming and dying and on comes this charging horse right at your face Charles troops don't break they're described as remaining in the ranks quote like a glacier from the frozen north end quote the chronicler goes on to state the Muslims were slaughtered in the blink of an eye the Muslim commander was killed they retreat disorderly Charles orders his troops not to follow now this is a fact that Bachrock says shows how disciplined and experienced these troops were to not just charge after the retreating troops, especially in some battle rage or bloodlust mind state. They wait till the next day and they finish off those that remained. And that's how Charles became a hero over 
all of the Germanic tribes there. He is the guy who turned back the Muslims. And he did it in a way that he got Aquitaine to be part of his kingdom now. So you can see how the Franks are shaping the identity and destiny of Europe here. Clovis, because of Clovis, Catholicism has a chance of claiming Europe. And now because of Charles of the Hammer, Europe won't be Muslim. And the Muslims still held their territory in southern Gaul. They continued to launch raids. Some historians use this as proof to show that this battle wasn't as decisive as some of the early historians thought because some of the raids were even bigger. But nonetheless, Charles is fighting them. He's invading that area. He doesn't take it out, but he, make, he makes it so that the Muslims cannot expand any further. So regardless of how important that battle is, you can't ignore the fact that Charles the Hammer is the reason why the Muslims were stopped at Spain and why Gaul did not turn Muslim. And this is right around the time period we left off. We're in 739 now. The Pope asks Charles for help. And Charles, the leader of the Franks, the guy who kept the Arab Muslims out of Gaul, bringing victory to all the Christians, he declines. Turns out he's good allies with Lutprand. In fact, he had used Lombard help to raid Bavarians, another Germanic tribe to the southeast of Frank territory. And he uses their help to bring in the submission. In fact, that first raid into Bavaria, which happened in 725, Charles brings back a wife, Swanachild. What a name there. But in other words, Charles and Lutprand were actually really good friends. <laughs> and the Pope asks a second time, and even sends to the Franks keys to the tomb of St. Peter to impress them. And impress them he did, but Charles still said no. And in the end, the Pope had to make an alliance with the southern Lombards there. So that's how it got into that complicated situation that we are talking about earlier. Still, even without an army, though, the Pope manages to keep Lutpran, the northern king there of the Lombards, at bay. That is how prestigious this Pope is. He's able, through diplomacy, to keep some of his cities still independent. Lutpran's not conquering Rome. It's amazing. And then things change in 741, because in 741, Gregory the Pope dies, the Byzantine Emperor dies, and Charles dies. 741, when Charles died, there's not even a puppet king on the throne. But Charles divides his kingdom among his sons. He's got two of them, Pepin and Carloman. Immediately, the two have to work together to suppress revolts all over Gaul. You got revolts in Aquitaine, Bavaria, Saxons, Alemannia. All these people took a chance for independence. And the two brothers worked together to crush them all, but also to help quell some of these rebellions. They ended up putting a puppet king on the throne in 743. Meanwhile, the Pope is still dealing with the Lombards, who's still threatening his territory. And Rome, of course, is always under threat there. The new Pope is Zachary. Apparently, he broke tradition. He didn't even notify the emperor and Byzantine of his election. That's how bad relations are between the two, and they're never going back to the good old days. Zachary manages to keep the Lombards back at bay, just like the previous pope, but the Lombards get a new king, one that is even more anti-Rome than the previous one. You could say the threat level gets back to red if you're the pope. 
But there are some things going for Zachary. First, Pepin isn't best friends with the Lombards like Charles Martel was, so it makes it more likely he can get their help. And secondly, Carloman, a deeply religious guy, essentially abdicates his throne and retires. So Pepin in 747 is completely control of the entire kingdom. There is no civil war. And that's when the relationship between the Pope and the Franks really begins to take off. You see, Pepin is in control all by himself now, and he wants to remove the puppet king. He wants to make himself king now, but he can't figure out how. How can he make it legitimate in front of all his peers and the nobles? You see, as mayors, they were acting like the king, but to all the nobles and the peers, it was more like a first among equals situation. You can't just turn yourself into a king willy-nilly, especially without the magic in your long hair. But he sees an opportunity with the Pope on how he can legitimately take the throne instead of usurping it, which he pretty much already did anyway. In late 749 or early 750, Pepin writes a famous letter to the Pope asking this question. Is it right that the King of Franks at the time had absolutely no power but possessed the royal office? Now, if you're the Pope, this is exactly what you need when you need it. So here's the Pope in need of a protector. His best option comes to him, essentially asks, hey, can I overthrow my king here? It's perfect. What do you think the Pope's going to say? Well, he writes back to the king and says that a king with no power is a disruption to the proper order and that he that has power ought to be king as well. Interestingly, actually, that letter is lost to history. I think it's because that kind of thinking actually endangers any king at the time. So they probably just buried it. Regardless of that, that's what the sources say was the response. The Pope says, yes, overthrow the king. Pepin proclaims himself king November 751. The puppet king gets a haircut. You could say it's probably the most important haircut in European history. And he's put into a monastery. And when Pepin proclaims himself king, he gets himself anointed with oil by the bishops of Gaul, which is an important point we'll get back to later. Zachary dies shortly after the new Pope Stephen comes along the scene in 752. Now he's still dealing with the Lombard threat. It's always getting worse. They're taking more cities away from the Pope. The Byzantines aren't doing anything. It's the same complicated situation. But now it all hinges on the Franks. If the Franks stay friendly with the Lombards, the Pope loses out. But if the Pope manages to turn the Franks into allies, then the Lombards are going to lose out. Even with Pepin as king now in this relationship that's just starting, it's not 100% clear where the Franks are going to fall. You still have a lot of Frankish nobles that like the Lombards, and so it's not entirely easy for Pepin just to break with them. The Pope decides to go up in person, the Franks invite him to Francia, and on his way, he stops by to negotiate in person with the Lombard king. He asks the Lombard king to get his property back, and the king says no. He's probably counting on the alliance with the Franks to hold, even though he knows that's what the Pope is trying to do, break the alliance. But he's stuck because he needs the Franks to be friendly in order for him to achieve his goal, which is to unite Italy under his throne. But if he stops the Pope from going up north, then it's going to upset the Franks and he's going to have war. So he has to let the Pope go and just hope for the best. It's November 753. The Pope crosses the Alps, 
basically at the start of winter. And this is unheard of. This is how important this relationship is to the Pope. First of all, no Pope has ever traveled to Gaul before. That's below their station. And the fact that this Pope is traveling in the wintertime, crossing the Alps to visit what many people still see as a barbaric kingdom is a huge diplomatic victory for the Franks. It's tremendous. According to one historian I read, it's, Pepin's not even sure that the Pope would even come. But the Pope comes. He crosses the Alps. There's all these gusts of snow. He's traveling across an ancient crumbling road. The lakes are all frozen. I mean, it's just really not the best time to cross a mountain range at this time period. But he reaches Gaul, and he's escorted to a city up there in the uh, what's basically northeast France. He's escorted by some of Pepin's great men in his kingdom. And as he approaches Pantheon, the city where they're meeting, once again, sorry guys, I probably butchered that name. Pepin sends out his son, his oldest son, to meet and help escort the Pope. It's a boy who had been six or seven years old, and his name was Charles. You know that would have made a lasting impression on him. So Pepin and Stephen, they meet at Pantheon in January 754, and now we see what Pepin gets and why he's so excited for the visit. Stephen repeats the anointing ceremony, and basically by doing so, locks in Pepin's dynasty for good. This is the legitimate king of the Franks, and he anoints Pepin's sons, Charles and Carloman. And that's like the final seal of approval for Pepin's rule and ensures his future dynasty. This is what Pepin needs more than anything else. Because remember, the Germanic kings, they had this magical power associated with them. And you have to keep this medieval mindset about in order to understand this. Germanic kings were sanctified by this charisma, you could say. They claimed to be descendants of the gods. And it would have to take, in their eyes, something of some divine institution to nullify all of that. And now you have the Pope, the head of a church here, the top of the hierarchy outside of Frankish politics coming in to anoint Pepin. And it's like perfect. It's the closest thing in their eyes next to God that could possibly transfer this mystical charisma from one King to another. Here's how Paul Johnson writes about it in his book. Quote, the desire of the papacy for close alliance with the chief authority in Western Europe coincided with a comparable urge on the part of barbarian kings to obtain the highest Christian sanction for their authority. Under paganism, these royal lines had claimed descent from mythical gods. Then came Christianization, and when and if the line failed because of lack of heirs or defeat in battle or poverty, the new royal house, which succeeded, needed the introduction for a religious ceremony as initiation into the powers of kingship. Sacramental grace was poured into the new king as a substitute for the royal blood he lacked, end quote. And it may be hard for us to understand in this modern age. We talked about what defines a state in our modern definition is one saying that state claims no higher authority than itself. And going by that perspective, then, of course, you didn't really have a modern state till Napoleon comes along, conquers Europe, and does it in the name of France. Well, what's France? When you walk between the borders of France and Germany, you're not breathing different air all of a sudden. It's an abstraction. It's an idea. Well, that kind of thinking would be just as foreign to the Franks living in the 700s as their thinking is to us. What is Francia? It's always been about a ruling family. It's been about the nobles having loyalty to this family, and Pepin couldn't just make himself royal 
just like that. The state was built on the royal family, and the loyalty it created, tradition, and heritage of all that, and it was firmly rooted in victorious war leading. But now, with Pepin and the Pope, you have the definition of a state change. As Paul Johnson puts it, the Pope has now become a kingmaker. That's a pretty big development. Moving forward with Charlemagne and his dynasty ruling Europe, a royal family wasn't royal unless they had the consent of the Pope. Now the Pope would make royalty. And this was an important step in the Catholic Church and its domination of Europe. Now at the time, it was a very logical replacement of what was going on in this thinking based in magic. And of course, it took some time even for the Franks to convert. Now, just because Clovis converted and 3,000 Franks converted with them, it's not like everyone just overnight became Catholic. During Charles Martel's life, even, there was a famous Anglo-Saxon missionary, Boniface, who was having a hard time converting the Germans into Christianity. And the Catholic Church there was, at the time, barely existent, barely functioning in the way that you would typically think. And the bishops there were actually pretty much under full control of the Frankish nobility. But you get a good idea of the people's beliefs from the account of this guy's life. While he was in a territory called Hesse, he was working there to convert the pagans, and he chops down a famous pagan tree, the Oak of Grismar, called Thor's Oak. And I just wanted to share this account just to give you an idea of what the Franks were like with their system of beliefs at this time. According to the account called The Life of St. Boniface, this happens around 724. Quote, Now at the time, many of the Hessians brought under the Catholic faith and confirmed by the grace of the sevenfold spirit received the laying on of hands. Others, indeed, not yet strengthened in soul, refused to accept in their entirety the lessons of the inviolate faith. Moreover, some were wont secretly, some openly, to sacrifice the trees and springs. Some in secret, others openly practice inspections of victims and divinations, ledger domain and incantations. Some turn their attention to augurs and auspices and various sacrificial rites, while others, with sounder minds, abandon all the profanations of heathenism and committed none of these things. With the advice and counsel of these last, the saint attempted in the place called Geismoyer, while the servants of God stood by his side, to fell a certain oak of extraordinary size, which is called by an old name of the pagans, the Oak of Jupiter. And when, in the strength of his steadfast heart, he had cut the lower notch, there was present a great multitude of pagans, who in their souls were earnestly cursing the enemy of their gods. But when the foresight of the tree was notched only a little, suddenly the oak's vast bulk, driven by a blast from above, crashed to the ground, shivering its crown of branches as it fell. And, as if by gracious compensation of the Most High, it was also burst into four parts, and four trunks of huge size, equal in length, were seen, unwrought by the brethren who stood by. At this sight, the pagans who before had cursed now, on the contrary, believed and blessed the Lord, and put away their former reveling. Then, moreover, the Most Holy Bishop, after taking counsel with the brethren, built from the timber of the tree, wooden oratory, and dedicated in the honor of St. Peter the Apostle. End quote. That count is great because it shows how the Catholics were winning over the pagans. They weren't necessarily challenging their beliefs, but co-opting them. And this sacred wood would become part of a church dedicated to St. Peter. It's the same kind of mystical thinking, but with a Christian name. And that's actually how the Catholics promoted their religion. 
Here's how Paul Johnson puts it. He writes, The Dark Age scholars believed that God had imposed definite limits on what knowledge man might acquire in this world without sin. And accepting these limits, they were motivated by fear as well as by respect for the past. They were indeed fearful and superstitious men, end quote. And he goes on later and describes what he's talking about. He says, quote, If Christianity had been imperialized in the 4th century, it was to some extent barbarianized in the West during the three centuries beginning about 500. Nothing exactly new was created, but certain elements already present in imperial Christianity were enormously inflated and so transformed. Of these, by far the most important was the cult of relics. Relics rapidly became, and for some 800 years remained, the most important single element in Christian devotion. They were the Christians' only practical defense against inexplicable suffering and the constant and malignant activities of the devils. Saints were believed to communicate with the world through contact with their earthly remains, end quote. So you can see the Catholics were actually just as bad as the pagans. They were practically pagan. <laughs> Even in Rome, they acted as if Peter was still living. Some of these letters between the popes and the Frank kings there, the pope was actually addressing the letter as if he was St. Peter himself alive, talking to the Frank relics became the most important aspect of religion to the ordinary German. And they're indispensable. They're part of the judicial system, the oaths and the judicial combats. King carried relics into battle when they were victorious. Many saw the relics as having direct influence on this success. When Clovis defeated the Muslims, the Franks credited not just Clovis, but St. Martin. Here's how Johnson puts it one more time. Quote, they conveyed a sense of supernatural power, constantly humming through the world, which could be switched on through access through the right liturgical and sacramental channels. With an absolute belief in miracles worked by saints, the possession of relics became for ordinary people the most important aspect of the religion. End quote. So a huge percentage of Frankish liquid acids were actually tied up in these relics. The kings collected them. They were sold on the black market. And I bring this up not to mock them, but to show you how the Franks and the medieval mind thought at this time and why something like the Pope anointing Pepin would cement his rule and make him royal. And remember, this wasn't just done to Pepin, but Charles, his son. Back to Pepin. For him, this deal was well worth the price of subduing the Lombards. They also got a solemn pact of friendship in there. It's a pact made with real obligations. The Pope gave Pepin's sons the title of Patrician of the Romans, a title usually given out by the Byzantine Emperor to the Exarch. So legally it had no meaning, but it had a lot of symbolism there about how these sons were to be the Pope's protector. And, and further strengthened the ties, the Pope made himself the godfather to Pepin's sons. So this was a pretty big pact Pepin made with the Pope. The Franks would now protect the Pope from the Lombards and Byzantines if need be. We'll see later, even from the Roman mob, heretics, basically everybody. And the Pope would protect the Franks by praying for the kings and more practically by refusing to work with any rival claimants to the throne. It was a win-win situation. And this deal was renewed between each new king and each new Pope going down. And in fact, Stephen died shortly after and they had a new Pope succeed him. And there's an important element to this. It's the last point I want to make before I wrap this up. You see, the ceremony used was essentially a copy of the coronation of Old Testament kings. And it's a deliberate copy. In fact, 
Since David's throne was actually still being used for coronations at this time, it's essentially a Catholic counterfeit. Here's how Alexander Barbero describes the ceremony in his book, Charlemagne, Father of a Continent. Quote, By having himself anointed with holy oil, Pepin brought into use the ritual recorded in the Old Testament, in which it is told that Saul took control of the kingdom by being anointed by the prophet Samuel. And after him, David and Solomon took the throne by being anointed. End quote. Now, this is a very cynical and carnal way to look at events. We know the throne was not taken by those kings, but given by God. But you get the point of what these Frankish kings in the future will emulate and what Pepin did at that moment. He goes on to write, quote, Anointing was not simply a matter of attributing an air of holiness to the king. It also conferred upon him an almost priestly quality. As with the kings of Israel, Pepin could now therefore rightfully claim to have been anointed by the Lord and assert his own authority over the church as well as the kingdom in a manner that he could not have done as a temporal Lord who had been only crowned. For his part, Pope Paul I did not hesitate to speak to him as the new David chosen by God to protect the Christian people, end quote. So this counterfeit idea is something that will motivate future Frankish kings. And I want to bring that up because that's important. They're going to use this as motivation and justification for what are in fact just truly bloody deeds. Now Pepin goes on to a successful reign. He crosses the Alps. He defeats the Lombards in battle. So he holds up his end of the bargain. He gives back many of the cities the Lombards had taken back to the Pope but he actually keeps the Lombard king in power. It's easier to manage what's going on in Northern Italy that way. The Pope, of course, wants more, but at least the Pope has some protection now. He's got a defined territory, and Pepin moves on from that. He kicks the Muslims out of Southern Gaul. He adds more territory to this kingdom, and in 768, he dies, and he leaves inheritance to both his sons, Charles and Carloman. By the way, if you haven't realized, the Franks like to name their sons after their fathers, so it's can be kind of confusing, but this is Pepin the Short. Now, leaving the inheritance to two sons, of course, leads to conflict. But at first, once again, you have the usual, everyone wants to rebel. So the two sons have to work together to keep the Frankish lands under their control. But relations between the brothers deteriorate when Carloman fails to help Charles put down a rebellion in a particular territory. Now, the mother is alive, trying to keep them unified, but even the mother starts to side with Charles, and you have a lot of political intrigue that follows that includes the Pope, the Lombards, and even the Bavarians. Part of it included Charles taking the Lombard king's daughter as his wife and then repudiating her, which infuriates the Lombard king. And just when it looks like it's going to be an outright civil war that will set back the Franks once again, Carloman dies in 771. It's such a convenient death. It's hard to believe it wasn't some kind of assassination, but the sources all say it was a natural illness. Hard to tell, but we'll go with the sources on this one. Charles quickly claims all of Carloman's territory for himself. Carloman's children, too young to do anything about it, and they flee to Italy. It's amazing when you think about it, how much history can turn on haircuts and diseases. And this sets the stage for the Franks' greatest king, a king who would not only expand the territory of the Franks into places like Spain, Italy, and Eastern Europe, but in doing so, forge a European identity, an identity built with the Catholic Church. Finally, we will get into what this whole series is about, Charles, who would later be called 
Carl Del Grosse, or as we like to call him, Charlemagne. In this program, I made a reference to David's throne still being in existence. If you want to get the full history behind that and the full story behind that throne, then please request for free the book called United States and Britain Prophecy. It will give you the story of David's throne and how it's still in existence being used in coronations in the 700s. Rewind Repeat, a history podcast, airs on kpcg.fm 101.3 as part of the Trumpet Radio. You can find this show and all the other shows on the Trumpet Radio on the Trumpet.com or on kpcg.fm.